Okay, good morning everyone. It's good to be back after a uh, long Parsha hiatus. I'm sorry I've had uh, several conflicts, but uh, please God, we'll be able to learn for the next uh, weeks together. We uh, have the privilege this morning of learning Parsha's Nasso. I uh, didn't anticipate Shavuos, I would lose my voice, so we'll see how far we get uh, together. This was a lot better idea to teach this morning on Erev Shavuos than it was on Motzei Shavuos. But I'm still glad to be here with you, and I'm glad that you showed up. Okay, Parsha's Nasso is page 748 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. As always, we'll do an uh, overview of the Parsha, and then, uh, if time permits and voice holds up, we'll get into some Sukkim as well. The Parsha begins where Parsha's Bamidbar left off. Parsha's Bamidbar, of course, we just read. It got lost as part of the first day of a three-day Yantif. But Parsha's Bamidbar contained the census, the counting of the Jewish people. And in fact, the entire book of Bamidbar our rabbis did not call it Bamidbar. We call it the book of, of Numbers. Why do we call it the book of Numbers? Bamidbar does not translate to Numbers. Bamidbar means a desert. Because the Parsha last week began by describing the place, the geography, the topography of where the climate, of where the Torah was given. The Torah was given in the Midbar. Chazal understand because only Misha Mesim Atzmo Kamidbar Hefker, only a person who makes themselves like a midbar, merits to receive Torah. What was the connection between a desert and receiving the Torah? It's a little anticlimactic on Isru Chag Shavuos to talk about this. But we receive the Torah anew each and every day, so it's still relevant. So the, uh, the commonality is that in order to really receive the message of Torah, to be inspired and informed by Torah, you can't impose your will on Torah. You have to try to make yourself a blank slate. Midbar Hefker, the imagery of a desert, is a deserted, barren area. It's an area with no preconceived notion. And so too, in order to truly receive Torah, a person has to try to purge. You have to do a hard factory reset on the device, get rid of all the data. You have to start afresh, start anew, to listen to the message of what Torah is telling us, rather than try to make Torah conform to what we believe are our preconceived notions. So it's significant, it's relevant. Torah is only acquired by somebody who makes themselves into a midbar. Maybe that's why Friday night in our davening, we say the parak of Tehillim, Tzadik HaTamar Yifrach, that a tzadik, a righteous person, flourishes like a tamar. A tamar is a, it's a date tree, a palm tree. Palm tree, why is a righteous compared to a palm tree? A tamar, a date tree, of all trees. So a date tree is the only tree that can grow in the desert. Its roots are very, very deep. It's able to derive nourishment from deep beneath the soil. And therefore, again, it's a reference that to be a tzaddik, to be a righteous person, you have to be able to survive in the desert, which speaks to many ideas. You have to not be materialistic. You have to be able to live in a minimalist way. But also that you have to be blank. You have to come at it as a clean slate. You have to analyze and look objectively and have Torah impress upon us, Hashem impress upon us His vision, rather than the opposite. So anyway, we call the book Bamidbar, that's not the name Chazal gave. Our rabbis gave it a different name. Our rabbis called it, anyone know? Sefer HaPikudim, Chumash HaPikudim. Pikudim means the counting. Because Parshas Bamidbar begins the third census, accounting. And here Parshas Naso continues right where we left off. Naso is Rosh B'nei Gershom Gamheim. Leves Avosom Lemishbechosom. Take a census of the sons of Gershon according to their father's household, according to their, according to their families. So, our rabbis understood the theme of the book of Bamidbar is the theme of counting. Last week's parsha already we referenced. Why does Hashem have to count? 
Why does Hashem have to take a census? A census is a human exercise. If you want to know how many people live in Palm Beach County, you got to take a census. You can't just magically, mystically arrive at the number. But the Rebona Shalom, the Almighty, is omniscient, omnipotent, infinite, all-knowing. He can just know the number. What does he have to bother going through the exercise of counting? Why put us through that census to begin with? So Rashi quotes, Rashi says, because Hashem loves us, He counts us regularly. You know, in life, a person counts what they love. Some people count their stocks and their portfolio. Some people count their children and their grandchildren. Some people count how many pairs of shoes or how many nice watches or how many homes. Some people count RBIs and ERAs and different statistics in baseball or sports. What a person is passionate about, they, they count. You know, you know how much money you have. What do you keep looking? What do you keep counting? You know how many watches you have? You know how many grandchildren? What do you keep counting them for? The answer is chiba. It's love. It's affection. We count the things that we love. And Hashem wants to impress upon us. He loves us. And so even though He already knows at the number, He can arrive at the number without the process of the count, He does the count in order to make us feel special. How does the count make us feel special? So it's interesting. The word, our entire parsha is named Naso. Naso means... So if you look at the English, the art scroll, kind of mistranslates it. It translates it based on the spirit, but it's not a literal translation. The art scroll here translates it, take a census of the sons of Gershon. But the word Naso doesn't mean a census. What does it mean? I'll give you a hint. Later in our parsha, we're going to have the directive to the Kohanim to perform Nisias Kapayim. Nisias Kapayim doesn't mean the counting of their hands. Kapayim are hands. What is Nisias Kapayim? To raise their hands, to lift their hands. Naso means to lift or to raise. Why are we using that word? Why not use the word monet or sofer to count? We have other words that literally mean to count. So why instead of using the word to count, are we using the word naso to lift? And the answer is, when you make someone feel that they count, you've lifted their spirits. Naso as rosh. Last week we had it also. Bamidbar began, Parshish Bamidbar began with the same language and the same theme. Su'u as Rosh Koladas B'nai Yisrael. Now it's Naso as Rosh B'nai Gershom. You lift someone's head, the depressed, despondent, downtrodden person whose head hangs low, who feels invisible, who feels inconsequential, who feels they don't matter, they don't count, no one cares. When you make them feel counted, Naso, you lift their spirits. If you make a person feel that they matter, that they count, you've lifted them. Naso is Rosh B'nai Gershom. The uh, Pasuk says, we said it this morning in Davening, the second Halleluka after Asher, Monem Baruch Hu is identified as the one who counts all the stars. There are gazillions of stars and the gazillions of galaxies. We barely scratch the surface of knowing what there is. It's almost endless. But Hashem knows their number. Monem He gives everyone a number. But he doesn't just give them a number because a number is dehumanizing, it's degrading, a number is a statistic. He's not only counting them to make them feel counted, that they're relevant, that the light they provide matters. He gives them a name. A name is personal. A name speaks to the uniqueness, the individuality. One of the greatest attributes, the greatest praises we can give of Hashem is that He's not indifferent to our individuality. We're not invisible to Him, but He counts us, and we feel counted, 
And a result, as a result of feeling counted, we feel our heads are lifted. Naso as Rosh B'nei Yisrael. Su as Rosh B'nei Yisrael. Naso as Rosh B'nei Gershom. I had the amazing privilege last week of uh, being in attendance at the embassy opening in Yerushalayim. And the last benediction was offered by Pastor Hagee. Pastor Hagee, whatever the debate about evangelicals, take their support, don't take their support. I'm a big believer, take their support. Because if we relied on the Jewish people, we'd be in very big trouble. Jewish people who are debating whether you could say thank you to the administration, God forbid, and maybe you're endorsing him. So we're busy debating, and the evangelicals, thank God, with their lobbying efforts and millions of dollars are the ones responsible for the embassy moving. So uh, Pastor Hagee has an organization, Kufi, Christians United for Israel. I was talking to him. You know how many members there are? It's 4.1 million members. Evangelicals, not Jews, 4.1 million members. Anyway, he gave the final benediction at the end, and very appropriate, unlike the benediction offered at the beginning. Um, very appropriate, very inspiring. So he used an expression to refer to the Ribbon Shalom, which you don't usually hear. We usually hear even our other co-religionists talk about our Father in Heaven, Father. He said, our Father who counts the stars and gives each one a name. Go back and watch. Because it was an extraordinary event. I felt so blessed and privileged to be there. I'll never forget, it was extraordinary historical for so many reasons. But one of them, what jumped out at me, Pastor Egi said, we, it's, he took it from, it's our davening, it's David HaMelech. It's David HaMelech, it's Tehillim. Who counts the stars and gives each one a name. Su'u naso as rosh b'nei gershom. When you lift, when you make someone feel that they count, that they matter, you've lifted them. And that's why the word is naso. Why do we count levesa avosam? One's Jewishness is defined by their mother. But their identity, Kohen Levi Yisrael, or what tribe they're in, is by the father. Why? So Rabbi Soloveitchik suggested that in this way, we're actually avoiding promiscuity. It's an affirmation of the wholesomeness of the Jewish people. Because what it means is, your identity is intertwined with your father. Which demands that what? You have to know who your father is. One's mother is undebatable, it's not debatable. One's father, we know, in certain situations or cultures, can be less clear. So the Rav writes, Enlightened Jews have criticized this law as a slight to women's dignity. They do not understand that the ideal of modesty is manifest in the patriarchally defined family. For families in primitive societies whose members engaged in promiscuity, children could not identify their fathers. The sanctity of the Jewish family is therefore <coughs> demonstrated by the fact that lineage is identified through the patriarch. I saw another beautiful pshat. Who are we counting here? The heads of the tribes. We're counting leaders. But the Torah is reminding even those leaders that what's their first duty, their first responsibility? You're out there changing the world. You're out there leading Kla Yisrael. But don't forget, it begins It begins with taking care of your family. It begins in your home. Our first responsibility is not to change the whole world, but our first responsibility is to be an av, to be a father, within the family. So this is the conclusion of the count that began in last week's parsha, concluding now with Gershom and B'nai Merari, ending with Moshe and Aaron, and, and so on.
Okay, the parsha then continues, and then we have the totals of the count. Again, the count is the expression of Hashem's affection for us, and the significance of making those around us feel counted when we do, we literally lift their heads. We lift their heads. We then have the mandate of Anyone who is impure, who is contaminated, is excused from the camp. The camp preserves its sanctity, its purity. We then have this prohibition. I'm on page 752. When a man or a woman commits any sin against man, and they act treacherously against God. What we're talking about here is one steals from a Jew and from a Gare. And it's unclear to whom you repay. We have all kinds of rules. When you steal, you have to pay not only the principal, but as well a fine. So here it's talking about who you pay. But I want to share with you Rabbi Soloveitchik's, I think, amazing insight on this Pasuk, a really beautiful insight in our Pasha. It says, Isha, Isha, man or woman, ki yasumi adam, and they make any, what's a chait? No. Gewalt. Thank you. Sin is not a Jewish word. We don't know what a sin is. Sin is not a Jewish word. It's a Christian word. I don't know what a sin is. A chait is a miss. A missed opportunity, missing the mark. It's missing the chance that Hashem has given us to elevate, to enrich, to come close to Him. A chait is a miss. So, ki mikol chatosa adam. If you make a mistake, you have an indiscretion. You miss the opportunity. And what did you do as a result? Lim'ol ma'al b'ashem. And because you missed the opportunity, you didn't follow Hashem's expectation, you missed the chance to come close, or you violated the chance in a way that leaves you distanced. And therefore, what happens? Lim'ol ma'al b'ashem. What does that word ma'al mean? What's the word me'ilah? We have laws of me'ilah. What's me'ilah? Me'ilah is a person, that's Mila. Me'ilah with an ayin. Me'ilah is if a person violates the sanctity of temple property, of consecrated property. You have a bench, a stool in the base of Mikdash, and you sit down on it for your own personal gain. You take the produce, the food, and you eat it in your own way. If you take property of Berekabayis, that which belongs to the Mishkan, to the Beis HaMikdash, to God. It's consecrated, sacred property. And you use it in your own personal benefit, in your own personal way. This isn't true today because we don't have Me'ilah today. But like, if you took the Yad on the Torah and you used it to follow the comics in the newspaper, it would be Me'ilah. We don't have Me'ilah today. That's not a technical violation of Me'ilah, but the spirit. So Basalavitchik wonders, why is the word Me'ilah used here? We're not talking about a case where somebody violated the consecrated sacred property of the Mishkan, of the Beis HaMikdash. So why when we're describing a chait, person made a mistake, person had an indiscretion, person showed poor judgment, person missed the opportunity, and yet we're describing it with the same word of that law, of violating sacred property from mundane use. Why? So listen to the insight of the Rav. The concept of ownership as it applies to man differs fundamentally from how it applies to God. If an object belongs to someone, he can grant permission for others to use it. In the case of items that belong to Hashem, however, another factor comes into play. The object is consecrated, it's hectish. The use of the dative case in the phrase, Lashem Haaretz Umla'ah. To God is the earth, Umla'ah means, and everything in it, and its fullness. Instead of the possessor of the earth and its fullness are God's, Haaretz Umla'ah Lashem, 
it says, right, which would signify that God not only owns the world in the juridic sense, but that the world is consecrated to Him as well. Note that the grammatical construction of Hashem Maratzim is similar to the standard formula for consecrating an animal as hektish. Lashem chatas. So why are we describing Hashem's word, world rather, Hashem's world and everything in it, we're describing it using the same terminology as hektish, as consecrated property. When one sins, he violates the prohibition of me'ila, of illicit use of consecrated items. God is not only the creator of the universe, he's also the master of everything in it, including man. Thus we say and plead in the slichos, Hanesham alach, v'aguv shalach. The soul is yours and the body is your making. Everything in the world belongs to Hashem. Man's powers are, so to speak, on loan, temporarily leased to him by God. God endows man with life for a certain period of time. He allows man ownership over him for the allotted period. This ownership of man himself by himself is utilized by the individual in a number of ways, through free choice, through the exercise of his intellectual powers, through his potential ability to create, and so on. By making a mistake, or sinning, man loses the right and privileges that were given to him. In other words, our very life is sacred. God gave us our life on loan. The ability to see and hear and walk and talk. The talents, the skills, the attributes that we have are all gifts from Hashem. They're no less consecrated. The world and everything in it, including us and all of our personality, talents, skills and attributes, really belong to Hashem. They're on loan from Hashem. And when we misuse them, when we abuse them, it is no less me'ila. It is no less the violation of consecrated property or consecrated rights. At the conclusion of Yom Kippur and Ne'ilah, we say, Hashem, you extend your hand to transgressors and your right arm is outstretched to receive repentance of sinners. One may well wonder, right, we end, so that we may cease from the thievery of our hands. That's what we say at the end of Ne'ilah. Poshet Yad, you extend your hand to all those who make mistakes and from the thievery of our hands. Why thievery is the one and only sin for which the Jew brings himself before the Almighty and knocks on the gates of mercy and pardon at the conclusion of Yom Kippur. Aside from theft, another 44 transgressions are enumerated in the al Khaid confessional prayers. Why is theft singled out? And special emphasis at Ne'ilah. Right? al Khaid has 45. Chait is one of them. Uh, Geneva's uh, theft is one of them. So why at the end of Yom Kippur is that the only one that we're highlighting? Why not say, Lashonara, or we acted frivolously, or we wasted time? Why specifically theft? Says the rough theft actually encompasses all types of chait. With every chait he commits, the Jew foregoes his right of possession over his own life. A Jew who studies for intellectual enjoyment is utilizing his power of wisdom, which belongs to the Almighty, and is only temporarily placed at his disposal. The moment this intelligence is contaminated by impure intentions, man's rights to this God-given attribute expire. And any further exercise of it is a form of theft. Same applies to all the other transgressions which can deprive man of ownership and the right to use his own physical and spiritual faculties. Through sin, man destroys his right to life with his own hands. Through sin, man forgoes his right to control the physical forces which vitalize his body. And when he goes on living a life of sin, it is an act of outright theft. You're a ganav. Shem gave you this life and this car and this home and these, everything that we have to use productively, to use to advance his mission, to use for the good. And when we misuse and abuse it, we've stolen. When a man repents and regrets his acts, 
It is as if a new transaction has taken place and the contract of ownership has been renewed between him and his creator. It's a very beautiful insight and it really is an insight that speaks about life as a whole. That who we are and what we are and what we have is all on loan. And we can only use it, we're only entitled to use it for the purpose for which it has been lent to us. And when we misuse it, we've stolen from the Rebona Shalom. That's not why we're here. And it's not why He's made us into who we are. And so this Pasuk that describes Asher, what's the Pasuk? Mikochatos Adam. When you do chait, limo ma'al bashem. You've done me'ila to Hashem. If you do chait, if you misuse, if you, if you miss an opportunity, then limo ma'al, you have violated consecrated, consecrated property. A very, very beautiful insight. Torah then goes on and tells us the laws of the Sota. Sota is the uh, wayward woman, the woman who's accused of infidelity. What's the story of the woman who's accused of infidelity? So the Torah describes, and there's several questions we could ask on it, but maybe we'll come back to it in a moment. We'll come back to it. Right after the story of the Sota is the story of the Nazir. The Nazir is the Nazirite person who takes a vow. A man or a woman takes a vow to be a Nazir. And as a Nazir, they have to abstain from cutting their hair, becoming contaminated, with contact with a corpse, and eating or drinking, eating grapes or grape products or drinking, or drinking wine. Is the Nazir a positive or a negative? We've discussed this in the past. We have online on Why You Torah, Shir on this, on this parsha. There's indications both ways. On the one hand, the Nazar is called the Kadosh. The Nazar is called holy. On the other hand, at the conclusion of his term, the Nazar brings a Korban Chatas, brings a, for lack of a better term, sin offering. So which is he? Is he Kadosh? Or did he do a Chait? And the answer is, yes. The answer is both. What do you mean both? The Nazar certainly can attain a level of sanctity. If you take a vow of abstinence, if you live an ascetic life, you can attain holiness. If you disengage from the world, if you never speak to anyone, you won't speak Lashon Hara. If you never look at someone of the opposite gender and you never are tempted, then you're going to be holy. If you don't eat, you fast every Montek and Darnashtik, then you're never going to eat the wrong things or be tempted by food. If you withdraw from the world, if you disconnect from the world, of course the result will be a certain level of holiness if you define holiness by not giving in to the temptation, impulse, desire of the world. However, it's a shortcut to holiness. It's a cop-out to holiness. To become holy by withdrawing, to become holy by abstaining, is not genuine. It's counterfeit holiness. The ultimate holiness is to engage the world and to elevate it, to lift it. To eat, eat what's kosher. To enjoy physical intimacy in the context of marriage and appropriate the laws of family purity. To speak, but use speak, speech to build and to elevate, not to destroy. The ultimate holiness is not to disengage the world, it's to engage it and to elevate it. So is the Nazir holy? Yes, he's kadosh. It's not disputable, he's kadosh. But he got there in a counterfeit way using a shortcut. And therefore, he brings a chatas. Why is the Nazir, why is the Nazir appear right after the story of the Sota? So Rashi quotes the famous Chazal, that whoever, Mishiroa Sota Bekulkula, 
If you see the consequence, the result for the sota, you must recoil and regroup and take upon yourself to be a nazir. What do you mean, see sota bekilkula? What happened to the sota? So we'll go back and look at it more closely, but basically a man is suspicious of his wife, so he warns her, don't seclude yourself with that man. She secludes herself with the man nonetheless. There are two witnesses who testify that she secluded herself, that she violated Yichud. The witnesses don't in fact testify that they saw her be licentious. They didn't see the immoral act. All they saw was she secluded herself. And yet, as a result of violating the warning to the testimony of two witnesses, she's brought to the Kohen, to the Beis Hamikdash. her hair is uncovered. This is the Torah source for the obligation of a married woman to cover her hair. And she's given this mixture to drink, the Mayim Ma'arim, the bitter water, the curse water, if she drinks it and she was, in fact, innocent, what happens? She gets pregnant. She gets pregnant she's fertile. She has children. Mazel tov, tova, wonderful. If she was, in fact, guilty, if, in fact, when she included herself, she crossed the line with that man, what happens to her? She dies. But she doesn't just die a calm and peaceful death. She dies a horrific death, a graphic death, a painful death. Now, there's several questions we have, which we'll come back on this. But the uh, Rashi quotes Chazal who say that if you see Sota Bikilkula, if you're observing and watching, you're following the blogs, the Jewish news, this story, this woman, was, her husband was suspicious, he warned her, she violated the warning, there were two witnesses who testified, she was brought to the Kohen, she drank the water, and guilty. She blows up, explodes. Disgusting. Painful, graphic, she dies. Someone who sees that, say Chazal, needs to immediately make a vow. A vow of abstinence, a vow of holiness, needs to become a Nazir. And the question is asked, why? <laughs> Didn't they just see what happened? I don't understand. You saw the result, you saw the consequence, you saw what happened to her. So what do you have to take? A vow. You're never going to be tempted to follow in her footsteps because you saw the result of what she did. Wasn't that enough to be a motivation for you not to follow in her footsteps? Wouldn't that disincentivize you enough to see how she dies? So why Why is it that when you see what happens, it should be the opposite. It should be the opposite. It's a famous question asked by many and a very powerful insight. The answer, and I think our generation maybe can appreciate this more than any other because of our access to the world through the gift of the internet, the gift and curse of the internet. They explain, true, the individual may not follow in her footsteps. An act of infidelity yields that grievous consequence. And you're not going to follow. But you know, the image that's now been planted in your head, that a person is capable of cheating on their spouse, that a person can act immorally and promiscuously, that image contaminates. That image steals the innocence. That image plants an idea and a fantasy and a distraction. And that needs to be purged. That needs to be addressed. So true, you see the Sota Bikukula. When you see what happens to her, no one's going to be tempted to walk in her footsteps. But that's not why Chazal say you need to become a Nazir. You need to become a Nazir because 
You ever hear something that you desperately wish you could unhear? You see something you wish you could unsee? But you can't. When you've seen it, you've seen it. And the power of imagery within the human mind is so strong. It comes back in distraction, in fantasy, in thought. And it haunts people for the good and for the bad. And so the person who sees this calls man as long as they never knew of a case of a sota. They said, nobody does that. That's, who does that? That's not realistic. Nobody behaves that way. It's not possible. Nobody's like that. That's not real. And then you learn about it happened once. Someone you know. And now it enters the realm of reality. And even if you won't actually follow in the footsteps, the fact that it entered your reality as a possibility will wreak havoc. For the mind to maintain, to be pure, to restore a sense of naivete, of innocence, you have to go above and beyond. You have to take on something new. You have to pledge to behave in a way which is holy in order to be the antidote, in order to counterbalance that image which has now been planted in your head. So that's the story of the Nazir and why the Nazir appears right after the Sota. What's right after the Nazir? Birchas Kaonim. The laws we just received, Birchas Kaonim, yesterday and the day before on Shavuos. We Ashkenazim, only Duchen on Yontif, based on the Machaber, based on the Ramah, Rav Moshe Isolus. But uh, Svaradim Duchen every day, mm-hmm. down the hall, our beautiful Svaradim Minyan, Duchen's every single morning, 365 days a year, they Duchen. So why the difference? Why the difference? Machaber Paskins, you Duchen every day. Comes along the Ramar of Moshe Isolus and says, not every day, just on Yantif. Why? So in our parsha, Torah tells us that the priestly blessing, Dabero b'nei Yisrael lemor, Kosev Archuz b'nei Yisrael, Amor lahem. Thus shall you bless the Jewish people, Amor. The word Amor means, it has to be, Malei, Losev Archeim b'chipazon, u'bebahalos, Ela b'kavana u'valev shalem. Rashi quotes, you can't fly through Birchas Kohanim. The Kohanim shouldn't run through it like they're in a rush to get somewhere. They shouldn't run through it like they really can't stand these people they're depositing this blessing on. It has to be Belev Shalim. It has to be with a full heart. And it's from that word, it's from that word, Amor, that we learn the bracha. What's the bracha? With love. We don't have another mitzvah that has to be done with love. It's nice if it's done with love. We want it to be done with love. But it's not a prerequisite. It's not a condition of doing other mitzvahs. And yet here this mitzvah is conditional. The prerequisite is that the Kohanim who are standing up there are able to do it bi'ahava. They're able to do it with love. In fact, if they're not able to do it with love, why would they not be able to do it with love? If they're a mourner, in their shiva, the Ramah Paskins, not just the shiva, but throughout the whole year. A Kohen who's a, in their year of mourning, even on the Shalosh Ragalim doesn't tuchen. It's hard to feel with love and with happiness when in fact you're sad. A Kohen who is not Murav in Abrios. A Kohen who is not integrated with the community whom he's blessing. Can't Tuchen. Because it's not Biahava. He has an enemy in the congregation. Then it's not Biahava. This notion of doing it Biahava is a prerequisite. It has to be it has to be it has to be full. Amor. Amor with the Vav. Can't be in a hurried manner, it has to be with a full heart, it has to be with a sense of 
love. And that's why we say, it's a biblical obligation that the birchas kornim can only be with love. So the shulchan, that's why the shulchan Aruch says, if you're, if you're in mourning, you don't. But the Ramah says, outside of Eretz Yisrael, kornim only duchen on shalosh regalim. Why? It's very interesting. So for the Machaber, for Sephardim, you could be happy all the time. Wherever you are in the world, anytime you're happy. Comes along the Ramah of Moshe Isselis living in Krakow, Poland, 16th century, and he says, you know, if you're living in Poland in the 16th century, for Jews who are dispersed around the world, running from the Crusades, running from the pogroms, and running from the Holocaust, on a daily basis, you're not really feeling a lot of simcha. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to get through the day. The only time a Jew in the diaspora is besimcha is the Shalash Regolam. When there's a mitzvah, when there's a mitzvah of simcha, the only time that we set aside our troubles and that we can really feel joyous is on the Shalosh Regalim. A Jew in Eretz Yisrael, doesn't matter that all the nations around them are pointing their weapons at them. Just being in Eretz Yisrael is a source of simcha. But when you're living in Golas and you don't have the privilege, the blessing, the inner innate joy of just being in Eretz Yisrael, at least the Ramah for Ashkenaz and Paskins, the only time that we really feel joy is on the, on the Shalosh Regalim. It has to be heartfelt, and the only time it can be heartfelt with a great sense of joy is on these Shalosh Regalim. It's very beautiful. It says, Kos of Archuz B'nai Yisrael. Thus shall you bless. The Chazal say, the Ko corresponds to... Yaakov says Ko. When does Yaakov say Ko? Yaakov says Ko. But we also have another Ko. With Avram. The Medrash wonders, Mehechan Zochi Yisrael Lebirchas Kawanim. From where did we merit Birchas Kawanim? And the Medrash answers, Vani Vanar Nelcha Ad Ko. Because Vani Vanar Nelcha Ad Ko, Ko Sevarchu is B'nai Yisrael. What was the beauty of Vani Vanar Nelcha Ad Ko? So the Das Sofer explains the greatest bracha a person can receive. Our greatest yearning, our greatest aspiration, our greatest dream, the greatest bracha that we want is not a bigger house and not a nicer car and not a bigger portfolio. Those all look nice. But what's the biggest bracha, says the Dasofer? The biggest bracha we long for is v'hani v'hani v'hanar nilcha. That our children go hand in hand with us. That they follow in our footsteps, that they embrace our values, that they walk in our ways, that there's peace and harmony in our family, that they stay on the derech that we work so hard to provide for them. V'ani v'anar nilcha. The greatest bracha is when our children and grandchildren, when our progeny walk in our way and walk together with us. So in the merit of Vani Vana Necha Adko, which was said when? Avram tells Yishmael, you wait here, Eliezer and Yishmael, Vani Vana Necha Adko, Yitzchak and I are still on our, we're going to go continue on, on their way to the Akedah. And when Yitzchak embraces the challenge of the Akedah, wholeheartedly, with the same faith, the same profound amuna as Avram, he feels a sense of vani vanar nilcha. We're in this together. I've successfully transmitted this to the next generation. And in the merit of vani vanar nilcha adko, kos of archuas b'nei Yisrael, in that merit, the Jewish people are blessed. We call this bracha, the bracha mishulashis, the threefold bracha. I've shared in the past, we've studied this in depth, so I'll just tell you the question. If you want the answer, you have to listen online. But 
Why do we call it the threefold bracha? It's not made up of three brachas, it's made up of six. Yivarechecha Hashem, v'yishmarecha. Yo'er Hashem panav elecha, v'chuneka. Yisar Hashem panav elecha, v'yaseim lecha shalom. That's six, not three. So why is it called the bracha meshulashas? Chazan has to be careful when you say the birchas kawanim and the chazaras hashatz. Many chazanim say it wrong. It's bracha meshulashas. Batorah haksuva, not bracha meshulashes batorah. The bracha doesn't appear three times in the Torah. It's the bracha meshulashes kama, the threefold bracha batorah haksuva that appears in the Torah once. So we call it the threefold bracha, but it's not really three. In fact, it's really six. So why do we call it three? Rabbi Willig in the Sefer Am Mordechai in his introduction, the Hakdama to that Sefer, asks this question and gives a very beautiful answer. I refer to you to his Sefer or to the Shir in the past on us. And then the Parsha concludes with what is somewhat, somewhat uh, burdensome. The Nesim, the Karbanas, the sacrifices that the leaderships of the tribes brought on Inauguration Day to erect the uh, Mishkan, and all 12 brought exactly the same Karban. They brought the same sacrifice. And the Torah could have been much more efficient. It could have consolidated and said... The twelve brought the following one korban. Doesn't. It elaborates. We're familiar with this laning from Hanukkah. This is the laning of Hanukkah. And each day we read each of the days that that Nasi brought his korban. Why the redundancy? Why the repetition? It's, uh, I once heard a rabbi describe this as a bar mitzvah, as a parsha only a bar mitzvah boy's mother could love. Because it's, you're sitting there in shul, and over and over and twelve times you're reading the same paragraph. Terribly inefficient, incredibly redundant. And that would be okay if the Torah had no problem wasting words. But this is a document. The Torah is a text that every letter, every vowel, we derive something. If there's an extra letter, let alone word, let alone sense, we learn an entire law. So here it's not an extra letter or sense. Over and over and over again, twelve times. What's going on here? over and over and over again. So Rabbi Soloveitchik has a great insight. <clears throat> Rabbi Soloveitchik says, each chieftain, nasi, it's a great Rabbi Soloveitchik word, chieftain, each nasi brought an identical offering to the Mishkan for the consecration of the, of the altar. The Ramban asked the obvious question, why does the Torah repeat in detail each set of identical sacrifices? And the Ramban offers two explanations. The first is, that the purpose of the repetition is to honor each leader by specifying his tribe and his sacrifice on his appointed day. Since it was impossible for each leader to be the first to bring an offering, each was honored with his own day to bring his tribe's offering. The second reason offered by the Ramban is that each of the leaders independently decided to offer the same sacrifice and the same gifts in honor of the consecration. The Ramban indicates that each leader had different kavanos. Each one had a different intention associated with his sacrifice. Yehuda's kavana was malchus, sovereignty, while Zvulun's kavana was for success in commerce. Yisachar's kavana was for success in learning. Although they all brought identical sacrifices and gifts, each individual's perspective and approach was unique. Each person had a different reason for bringing a sacrifice. The kavana salev that is associated with each individual's self-sacrifice is transferred to his korban and makes it uniquely his. Each tribe had a separate identity and unique talents and strengths. This uniqueness was symbolized by the unique flag and the color associated with each tribe. Together they comprised the complete spectrum of color, 
which in total made up Knesset Yisrael. Though externally all the elders brought the same carbon, each was an important, as important and unique as the flag and color of the tribe that offered it. It's a very important insight. Because you can look around and say, what's the point of my davening? We're all saying the exact same words from the same sitter. So what's the point? We're all taking the same Dalad Minim. We're hearing the same shofar. We're all eating the same matzah. It seems redundant. It feels redundant. Why does it matter to Hashem? Why do I matter? And says the Rav, the reason that Nesim, these karbonas are repeated over and over and over again is because yes, externally it seems the same and redundant. But you're neglecting the kavana, the panemius, the idea that everyone had their own intention. Everyone brought their own kavana to what they were doing. And you know, the external is insignificant compared to the internal. The mitzvah is a platform for us to apply our kavana. So this one is holding the Dalad Minim with this kavana, and this one's holding it with that kavana. This one's saying Shmon Esra and Rafa'inu is thinking about that. And this one's saying Shmon Esra and Shmakolinu is thinking about that. We can externally be doing the same things and they can seem redundant. And as a result, we can feel it doesn't matter. But it matters. Because what matters within each of the mitzvahs we do is not just the superficial action, but the intent that we bring to it. The kavana, how much we put of ourselves in it. And so when we read this, we feel like we're reading the same over and over and over again. But if you know each of the tribes, and you know their theme and their flag and what mattered, the bracha Yaakov gave to them at the end of Vayechi, then you know that the kavana they brought to their korban was distinct, it was unique, it was individual. And it's the attitude that we have to each of the mitzvahs that we do. It's not just to mail it in. Because everyone around me is doing it, so I'll just attach mine to theirs. I'm just doing the same thing. No, my unique kavana, Hashem is waiting for what unique kavana I will bring and I will apply to that action that I'm doing. Let's go back to the sota. And that ends the parasha. Let's go back to the sota. Questions about the sota? Well, actually, before we do, let me tell you about the haftorah. I don't usually summarize the haftorah too, but this parasha I'll tell you the haftorah. In our haftorah, vahi echad. There was a man from the tribe of Dan, his name was Manoach, and his wife suffered from infertility. And the Haftorah tells us the story that one day an angel appears to the woman and promises she'll conceive and give birth. And the angel tells her this boy that you'll give birth to is not ordinary. He's destined to save the Jewish people from the plishtim, and therefore he has to be holy from the womb. He's going to be a Nazir. And that's the connection why this Haftorah is chosen for our Pasha. And after all these years of waiting, the woman is overjoyed. She runs to share the wonderful news with her husband, Manoach. She repeats the entire conversation that she had with this angel, including the fact that the child is going to need to be raised without contact with wine or grape products, his hair has to grow, no contact with the corpse, and so on. Manoach, how does he react? He doesn't say, that's amazing news, let's get going. He says... He turns to Hashem and he davens. Send the angel back. I want to hear from the angel directly. And the angel, in fact, comes back and reiterates to Manoach all he had told Manoach's wife, that she would conceive, they would have a child, this child would be a savior for the Jewish people, needed to be a Nazir from the womb. Manoach is happy, the angel departs, and in fact, a baby is born. That young man who's born grows to be Shimshon, the great Jewish warrior, who in fact, his hair is long, and in his last act of bravery and courage pulls down the supporting pillars 
of the Plishti banquet hall, ending his life together with the Plishtim, these tormentors of the Jewish people. The question is, why did Manoach want the angel to come back? And when the angel came back, he didn't add anything new. There was nothing new in his update. So why was Manoach satisfied? Did he not trust his wife to relay the information accurately? Why did he play with, plead with the Ribbon Shalom to send an angel back? And why was he satisfied when all the angel did is repeat what was said to begin with? Rav Schwab, Shimon Schwab, the great uh, Rav of the German Jewry in Washington Heights, and his Sefer Mayan Beis HaShoeva, has a very important answer. He says that Manoach's confusion wasn't related to the laws about his future son. That he could have learned himself. He wanted to know more about the halachas of Nazir. He could have opened to Parshas Naso and learned about the Nazir. His dilemma was an educational one. He wanted to know that after hearing his son would be a Nazir and strive for holiness, and he'd be different than his peers, Manoach was concerned, how would his son stick with it? Okay, when he's a little boy and he emerges from the womb, they could impose upon him to be a Nazir. But as he grows and becomes an adolescent and none of his friends are, are Nazirim, how can they continue to raise him in this way, in this way of holiness? How can they get him to stick with and to maintain the angel's instruction for him to be a Nazir? And that's the question he wanted to clarify. His wife tells him the angel was here and said we have to raise him as a Nazir and he wants to know, but how? How can we raise him as a Nazir? And at first blush, if you read the Haftorah, it doesn't look like the angel answered that question at all. It doesn't sound like the angel addressed it. But if Schwab points out that there's one word which changes everything. Pasuk says in the Haftorah, The angel tells Manoach, Everything I told your wife, observe. The simple understanding of the Haftorah is, Everything I told your wife, namely, conceive, have a child, raise him as a Nazir, be her partner, support her in raising him as a Nazir. But comes along with Schwab and says, no, Tishmor, observe, doesn't mean help her raise Shimshon. Tishmor means you want your son to be a Nazir? Tishmor, everything I told your wife, you need to do. If you want your son to be a Nazir, you need to be a Nazir. If you want your son to stick with it, to have the conviction and the resolve to be with it, to stick with it even when his friends are not, then you need to do it yourself. So in fact, when the angel returns, the angel does answer Manoach's question. What is the, what is the means, the mechanism to raise a child who will have the fortitude and tenacity to uh, remain with it when you, with, or when you do it? Because if children don't see their parents doing something, then they're not going to imitate, they're not going to emulate. They'll emulate they're not doing it, not what they're doing. And so that's the, the message of the Haftorah, is that if Manoach wants to successfully raise Shimshon in that way, he can't just instruct Shimshon with words, he has to model for Shimshon with action. Tishmor is not partner in raising Shimshon. Tishmor is you, Manoach, yourself, you need to be the one. Back to the Sota. Eshes Manoach. It's a discussion. It's a question why. Why don't we know her name? Why doesn't she deserve to have her name? For that, you got to learn the Navi. So back to the Sota to end because I'm, I'm feeling ended. Back to the Sota. Let me ask you a question. There's a number of questions, but I only have strength for one more question. 
Let me ask you a question. This woman, is she a righteous woman? She receives a reward if in fact she was innocent. If in fact she was playing chess with the man she secluded herself with and nothing more, then in fact she gets a reward. She, even if she suffered from infertility, she's blessed with conceiving and having a child. Why does she deserve a reward? This is a woman who secluded herself. I'm sorry, this is a woman whose husband is suspicious of her. He warns her, don't seclude yourself. She violates the Torah prohibition of Yichud that we studied about yesterday. Learned from, partially from Megillus Rus. She violates the prohibition of Yichud. She violates it to the testimony of two witnesses who testify that she was alone with a man. He says, I suspect when you were alone with him, the door was locked, this is what happened. She said, nothing happened. We were alone, true, but nothing happened. When she drinks the water and she's proven innocent, I would think, go on your merry way, go back off into the sunset, blend back into society, but now we give her a big reward, Eishas Chayel award. She's blessed with conceiving and having a child. Is she at Sadekis that she deserves a reward? I would think you don't get the punishment, but you get a reward? It's a good question, no? Anyone have an answer? She went through the humiliation of the whole thing. Okay, maybe. Maybe that in itself makes it worthy. Oh. Okay, good. So maybe the answer is it's not a reward. It's a strategy for marital harmony. How do you take this couple who very publicly had this strife? He's suspicious, he accuses, she violates the accusation. Okay, it turned out in the end that she was innocent. She didn't actually do the deed in the locked room. But how are they going to maintain their marriage? And maybe the Torah's prescription for how they can maintain their marriage, because we know, Chazal say about this parsha, what is written on the parchment that goes into the water of this concoction she drinks? Hashem's name. Hashem's explicit name, Yudke Vavke. Chazal say, Shalom Bayis, harmony is so important to Hashem, He lets His name be erased. So maybe He also, for the purpose of marital harmony, to bring this couple back together, He says, listen, she was innocent, it was a bad time, let's, let's recover, restore, have a child together, continue this home. Maybe. Any other suggestions? So I once heard a suggestion, I forgot from whom, I apologize, that you see that True, she should not have raised the suspicion of her husband. And true, she should not have secluded herself in front of two witnesses or at all. But you know, when she did, she had opportunity. And there was temptation. And she overcame it. And she didn't act on it. And so even when we make a mistake and put ourselves in that bad situation, but if we rise to the occasion and do what's right, when it's most difficult, Hashem appreciates and gives us a reward. It matters to Hashem. She might have said, look, I already secluded myself. I already locked the door. At this point, what does it even matter? I violated Yichud. But no, she found the strength in that moment to not give in further. And that matters to Hashem. It matters to Hashem when we find that strength and we show up, even if we've already made a mistake to get there to begin with. And for that, she receives the reward. There's a lot more to say, but we'll have to end it here. Have a wonderful Isru Chag and a great week.